When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. It's August 2nd, and this is episode 65. And just ahead, Square makes a massive acquisition with an innovative credit product for its customers. And we'll look at who's profiting from the new space race. And our guests, Gainesville Coins' Everett Millman, explains why Barrick Gold is a miner like no other. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot And maybe you listen to The Drill Down while you're walking the dog or you're on your commute home or maybe you're taking a shower or walking on the street, whatever, when you're working out, we hope you can listen to the show every day. It's easier if you click the subscribe button and you can download every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain some business stories behind Stocks on a Move. We're also going to have your daily dose of news with the three most important business stories of the day with Isaac Webster, our executive producer. Hey, Corey, let's get started with a little COVID, a little Delta variant. Focus on that. COVID, as COVID and its Delta variant surge and a new chapter to the pandemic begins and stalls the economic progress going on across the globe, businesses are scrambling to figure out what to do about mask mandates and potential vaccination requirements. Large employers, including Target, Disney, Facebook, Google, Walmart, they're all introducing stricter requirements for employees returning to the workplace. But the New York Times reports, so far, with the exception of the healthcare industry, corporate vaccine mandates tend to over uh, tend to cover white collar workers whom executives want back in the office and not the lower income workers on the front lines who are less likely to be vaccinated. For example, Walmart's vaccination mandate uh, it doesn't cover the company's most vulnerable employees, workers at its stores and warehouses. Now, the CDC says, it started saying at the end of last week, that people vaccinated against the coronavirus should resume wearing masks in public indoor spaces in parts of the country where the virus is surging, like where we all live, New York, L.A., San Francisco, L.A., well, D.C. Except yeah. it's not surging in San Francisco, and yet, as you're about to tell us. L.A., D.C., and seven Bay Area counties are requiring masks. Uh, now, this new CDC guidance comes after almost a thousand new infections occurred over July 4th weekend in Provincetown, Massachusetts, of which almost 75% were breakthrough infections in fully vaccinated people, such as myself. I was one of those breakthrough infections, as listeners may know. And uh, that those cases in Provincetown prompted the CDC to reconsider its masking recommendations. Well, let's talk about this for just a second, if we can. Isaac, yeah. I want to get, yeah, I want to rush through the breaking news, but. You bet. Uh, I think it's really important. You know, we wanted this podcast to give information to people about the world of business before they heard it anywhere else so you can make yeah. sense of the things you hear coming down the pike. Yeah. We didn't know that would be the case with your personal health, but indeed, you were right. part of that 
you were, and our listeners know, you were, and they heard it here on this show first, yeah. you were one of those people who were experiencing this breakthrough, fully vaccinated, hanging out with fully vaccinated people, and yeah. so many of whom got sick with this breakthrough uh, over Fourth of July weekend in Cape Cod, where you were. Yeah, and you know, it's it's uh, it was humbling. It's It was a humbling experience. Thankfully, everyone in my family is now safe and sound well, again. That's important, right? So not only did you get sick, you yeah. didn't feel so great. You weren't hospitalized, but you didn't feel so great. You didn't, right. you're, is For your me, sense of taste and smell back yet? Yeah. So uh, again, prefacing, I am fully vaccinated as we've stated. So that is very, very important because it, it helped me have a, a considerably mild case, but it was as like a severe cold. I did lose my taste and smell. My taste and smell are still not a hundred percent a month later. Um, almost. And you later. infected just about everybody in your family, including your toddlers who are unvaccinated because they're too young. I your infected my five-year-old yeah. who got pretty sick, right? Yeah. My, both my children, my five and two years old, both of them sick. It was horrific to watch. It was just awful to go through. My elderly and elderly and uh, health compromised in-laws both got sick. My Father-in-law ended up getting pneumonia, almost got hospitalized. I mean, it was, and our nanny, our nanny ended up catching it too. And all my, our nanny and my in-laws are all vaccinated. So thankfully, because it, w- it would have been that much worse if they weren't vaccinated. Well, so maybe um, that is, you know, just not to uh, go spend too much time on it, but it, at least for our listeners, maybe this is a sense of what you might see coming down the road yeah. uh, in your area and and uh, and with the businesses that we're all thinking about and trying to take care of. And listen, like, the the way this all panned out, like I wouldn't wish this on anybody to what we went through, but let us be the canary in the coal mine, as I think I've stated on the show before. The fact is, just get vaccinated and wear a mask. Keep people safe. Don't get anyone else sick. No one wants it. I didn't want it. And yet here we are. So let me be your little lesson. Now, the next story we're looking at, AT&T's satellite television provider, DirecTV, will become a standalone video business as part of a deal between wireless service provider, AT&T, and buyout firm, TPG Capital. The video service says it will uh, launch DirecTV Stream, the platform, and it will allow its users to get access to streaming services such as Netflix, Amazon, and HBO Max. Interesting. DirecTV, uh, yet another new incarnation of that. Yet another. Here we go. Let's see if it works out. And finally, another Hollywood story for you. Blackstone is placing bets in Hollywood. Uh, Again, a firm backed by Blackstone is buying Reese Witherspoon's media business, Hello Sunshine. The companies didn't disclose the terms of the deal, but said it's part of a plan to build an independent entertainment company for Hollywood's streaming era. We should start drinking every time we say streaming. Now, Hello Sunshine has produced hits like HBO drama Big Little Lies, Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere, Apple's The Morning Show. The Wall Street Journal reports that Witherspoon's company may be valued around $900 million. And uh, the as yet unnamed media venture Backstone is backing will be run by former Walt Disney executives Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs. Interesting. Wasn't wasn't Mayer as a guy they thought was in line to be the new CEO? Yes. Yes. Disney didn't get the gig. Yeah. Then went to TikTok. Is that right? That's right. Briefly. Very briefly. Yeah. Um, but Kevin is a, you know, veteran here in LA. Both of them are. So it's uh this is something to watch How about for Reese sure. Witherspoon? $900 yeah. million. That's not actor money anymore. That's, that's big shot money. Honestly, like seeing any actor do something like this, run the successful company, make this great deal. It is inspiring. What I mean, was better inspiring. than Big Little Lies? Right. It was so fun. I mean, the morning show was great too. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? 
Let's start with Square. Square, SQ shares rose 10% today and they've gained over 100% over the past 12 months. Tell us about Square. They made some news this weekend. Well, surprise earnings, because earnings weren't supposed to be until Thursday. They announced earnings this morning because they were also announcing a big acquisition. They're buying a company, an Australian company called Afterpay, for $29 billion in Square stock. There's an option to pay 1% in cash, but it's probably $29 billion in stock. Afterpay is a very interesting business that allows consumers to essentially to rack up a little debt, but not too much and not for too long. It basically lets consumers pay buy something now and pay for it essentially over four payments every two weeks. Sometimes you can pay the rest over six weeks, but it's interest-free, interest-free payments. The only fees are for late payments. Uh, it's great for merchants, of course, because it drives more business. They have 16 million merchants on this platform, um, uh, 100,000 merchants, um, uh, in the seller ecosystem, or sorry, 60 million consumers, I should say. Um, and again, this is an all-stock deal. Uh, this Afterpay did, uh, again, focus in Australia, but uh, spread out all over the world, $16 billion in gross merchandise value um, compared to Square's $140 billion. So it's a big business, not as big as Square's business, but it's a big business and a big change for Square. It's a marketplace. And, you know, Square's, a, if nothing, if not a marketplace, Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, when Jack Dorsey talks about the, the Square CEO, talks about the marketplace of, of Square, he talks about ecosystems, the ecosystem of merchants and the, the ecosystems of consumers on the other side of that. And he sees this as just a way to enable more deals for both of these Square ecosystems. Here's Jack Dorsey. You know, we see a lot of competitors with um, a seller ecosystem or uh, a consumer ecosystem, but there are very, very few with both. Uh, together. And as you look at the market, um, you know, having having the ability for a seller to come in for buy now, pay later, but also have the entire uh, suite of tools they need to run the rest of their business um, is, is pretty magical. And it's magical because it saves them a lot of time. Uh, they don't have to spend a lot of time connecting different vendors together. Um, they can focus entirely on just building their business. And while it seems that's important for the smaller companies, uh, it's even more critical for the larger companies, even the enterprise global retailers as well. So our model and our strategy is really focused on on this fundamental principle of, you know, we have two ecosystems at scale serving both sides of the counter. And the more we can connect them together to be seamless, um, the more value we can create both for the merchants, for the individuals, their customers, and also for, for our company as well. So interesting, just a way to grow this business by getting more merchants to transact more because the consumers will have a credit available to them. Um, I got to say, for all the ways to offer credit, this seems like one that's less pernicious. Now, did he say anything about Bitcoin? Did Jack Dorsey say anything about Bitcoin? Uh, virtually the entire call was focused on this acquisition. Um, so they didn't have to talk much about their own business and they didn't have to talk much about business, uh, their Bitcoin business or Bitcoin sales business. But uh, it's worth noting that it was still massive in this quarter. Uh, 58% of the revenues for the company this quarter was just the sale of Bitcoin. So it makes the business look a lot bigger than it is. Um, It's also worth noting that the profits from those Bitcoin sales, just the gross profits, were uh, maybe the worst they've ever been, even though they sold a ton Mm. of Bitcoin during the quarter. So it looks like it, you know, if, if, if the gross profits are less than call it two or 3% in the best of times, once you put in all the other costs of just administering those Bitcoin sales, they probably lose money. 
on the Bitcoin business, but it raises their profile and brings a lot more revenues in the door. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at a company we don't look at often, which is Parker Hannafin. Parker Hannafin. PH shares, it trades under PH. PH shares fell 2% today, but have gained 67% over the past year. So tell me about Parker Hannafin. I don't so know this Par- company. Uh, giant company, $40 uh-huh. billion dollar market cap company. It's involved in um, aerospace and defense and and manufacturing of all, all sorts. It's a Midwestern company. Um, then they have some kind of random businesses that they've made bigger through acquisitions. They announced a big acquisition today, a company called Megat, uh, based in Coventry in the UK. Uh, they've got a, an aerospace and defense uh, business that, you know, basically, you know, these guys have products in just about every major aircraft platform with revenues of $2.3 billion in 2020, 9,000 employees. Um, uh, this is an acquisition really to get bigger in the space business. And uh, they're talking about how because of the big transition going on in the space business right now, you know, we've breathlessly covered uh, what's going on with Richard Branson going near space and Jeff Bezos taking his giant phallic symbol into space and or near space. Um, well, there is a boom in the space business coming, and it appears that Parker Hannafin, through the acquisition of Megat, is getting ready for that. Now, they've done some big acquisitions mm. in recent years, not the least the $4.3 billion acquisition of a company called Clericor. Isaac, we talked about this this morning, but Clericor and Parker Hannafin together have control over, you know, in your car, you've got your oil filter. Yeah. Well, in a, in, a, in a jet plane, you've got your, your jet fuel filters. And these guys command the market for that. With the acquisition of Clericor, they got a lot bigger in that market. Um, indeed, it was quite hard for them to choke down. But the experience of the uh, Clericor acquisition a few years back uh, makes CEO Tom Williams, the, the Parker Hannafin CEO, think that this Megat acquisition will go a lot better just as they're getting into a, a, a trough in the space business and ready for another space boom. Probably one of the things that is, if you're in the aerospace industry today, ourselves and Megat, uh, the worst is behind you. And um, the opportunity is, is in front of us and that, that you're going to see better times. And so that's very attractive. But one of the things that is different, if you take Clarkor, Clarkor was a very heavy, heavy footprint consolidation type of acquisition. This will be nowhere near like that. We're going to execute Megat's plan, which has been very thoughtfully laid out, uh, and it will be very digestible uh, while we while we go through what is expected to be a recovery over a period of time going forward. But that's how I would contrast the difference. This will be, and one of the challenges we have at Clark is we're doing all the footprint and we had volume going up and we won't have the same level of challenges with this. So it sounds like they're going to keep a lot more of this company intact as they acquire it. But again, I think it's interesting. You know, we, we, we suspect that we know Virgin Galactic is losing money. Jeff Bezos' business hasn't had any revenues yet, so they can't be doing much in terms of well, they had a little bit of revenue from the one person that bought the seat. But uh, I think that, you know, these guys are spending a lot of money and the companies that are supplying them with parts may do quite well indeed. Now, Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, if you looked at R-A-D-A, you'd think it was pronounced RADA, but I'm calling it uh, maybe with a Boston X, will go RADA. RADA, 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 R-A-D-A, shares fell almost 7% today, but they've gained 86% in a year. So tell me about RADA or RADA or I'm R-A-D-A. going RADA. 
Because they're in the radar business. Ah. Yeah. So they reported second quarter earnings today. Very interesting Israeli company here in the radar defense business. Quarterly revenue is up 61% year over year. Um, uh, and just 12% of the last quarter to $28 million in the quarter. Big gross margins. You don't usually see this in a military contractor. 40% gross margins for what is essentially a hardware company. What do they do? Well, remember um, when Hamas was sending rockets in uh, from the Gaza Strip into Israel and Israel set up their, their iron uh, uh, dome of drones shooting of back at those? Yeah. That was often using radar components. Oh, gotcha. Uh, that, that defense system was set up sending back over 90% of the 1,200 Hamas rockets that came in. Um, their, their RPS-42 radar, their precision technologies, imaging, radio detectors. Um, they, I don't know if you remember when there was a problem of drones flying near Heathrow. These oh, yeah. guys got rid of that. So it's, gotcha. it's, a, it's a very interesting company that's done a lot of business with the U.S. military uh, as well. The business, and they're able to sell also into some Middle Eastern companies with this just cutting-edge radar technology. Here, uh, and pardon the Israeli accent, but I think it's really interesting to hear what the CEO Dov Sela has to say about where this business is growing and, and how confident he is in that growth. So the, the U.S. market is showing real strength. Uh, it, it is also surviving any question marks around, uh, you know, declining of budgets and so on, because we are in the priority uh, channels, in the modernization priorities of the Army, and they and they are addressing the current and and the nowadays the threats that are in the focus of all the all the military forces. Uh, we see the European market opening up, uh, but it is very gradual and slow. So here it is behind our expectations. The Middle East open up for us because the need is very clear. Uh, however, the COVID slowed down things, uh, and the, the U.S. market compensated last year dramatically for that. We do believe that uh, the, the trend will, uh, you know, will uh, show up uh, probably towards the end of this year and into next year. So we do believe that the market is continuing to grow. So growth markets all over the world for these guys. Um, with, again, this kind of cutting-edge technology that's doing some pretty neat stuff in a world where we're worrying increasingly about drones of all sizes. All right, well, coming up next, if you ever want to understand the mining business, you got to listen to this. Gainesville Coins, Everett Millman. We talk about Barrick Gold, but I think you walk away with a real understanding of what makes a mining company work and how you can tell things are going well when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. We are joined right now by Everett Millman from Gainesville Coins to talk about Barrett Gold, a really interesting uh, big gold miner. And Everett, glad to have you with us. Uh, let me sort of take a 100,000-foot view, if I may. I, I, so I, let, me, let me tell you this. So I've, I've been investing for a very long time. I've been following business for a very long time. 
I've never owned a miner of any kind. Uh, I've been sh- I was short one gold miner once upon a time because they had a logistical problem that I didn't think they could overcome, or they had to build some massive bridge in the middle of nowhere. Uh, that was my short thesis. But I, I've never. What's the difference between a good uh, gold mining company or a good mining company and a bad mining company? What do they look like? Well, thanks for having me on, Corey. And that is a fascinating question because it is, in some ways, investors look at the mining sector as monolithic, um, that all companies are the same. You know, what's the difference between them? And I think one of the main things to look at is the quality of their assets. So not just kind of the total aggregate view of what they're producing, but um, what is the lifespan of each of their projects um, and what kind of provable reserves do they have? And in that regard, Barrick really does uh, check those boxes. It is one of the major gold miners for a reason that it has accumulated a portfolio of some of the best gold mining assets in the world. Well, Um, let's let's, let's stick with the macro here. So you're talking about the reserve. So uh, just like any oil company uh, that tells you how much oil is under the ground and some of it they think is there and some of it they know is there and some of it's proven and some of it's suspected to be there. And they give you those statistics on an annual basis and it includes the cost of getting it out of the ground, which is to say if the price of oil falls and you've got an exploration production company, if the price of oil falls to below the, the, the value of pulling the oil out of the ground, if it costs, I don't know, $50 to pull the oil out of the ground and the price of, of oil is $49 a barrel, then they can't count that as reserve any longer. How does it work in the world of gold? Well, that's an excellent comparison, and um, it brings up really the main metric that gold miners use is called the all-in sustaining cost, and you'll often see the acronym AISC. And it's it's a it's a non-gap. It's not a generally accepted accounting principle or practice, but. Um, for about the past 10 years, this is what the industry has used to measure what you're talking about. What is kind of their break-even price that um, the gold price has to be above this level for them to make profit, for them to continue? Um, and in terms of Barrick, they have one of the best-looking AISCs in the industry. Um, particularly on gold, it's around $900 an ounce. So just doing a quick check, that's about half the gold price. So that's a pretty good margin right there. Um, and on copper, it's a similar story where their all-in sustaining costs are about $2.25 a pound, where the copper price right now is about twice that. So those, those are good margins. But one thing, is because it is a non-GAAP uh, measurement, is that it doesn't include the cost of things like um, the cost associated with uh, mergers and acquisitions, and that is something that's an area where Barrick has been very active. It's a it's a big part of their business. And so their actual margins are probably not as good as the AISC would indicate from there. But it's basically our best barometer we have to work with. And it suggests that what's in the ground, is it, if they can get it out, uh, if it, well, if it's really there and if they can get it out, um, it'll be profitable to do so. Right, right. Now, like you said, it has to be there first. So the exploration side of this is always important as well. So where are they in terms of where they're producing and then what their exploration um, uh, activities are? And they've got big mines in Nevada, right? They've got two big mines in Nevada. Absolutely. The the Nevada complex, in fact, is the the largest gold mining project anywhere in the world. Um, So when we're talking about the projected ounces of gold that they have in the ground that they expect to be there in reserves, it's something huge on the order of 27 million ounces of gold. So at the current rate, you would expect this mine to have a lifetime a lifespan of 10 to 15 years, which is rather good. 
Um, but Barrick is very well diversified across the globe. Um, they have mining projects on four different continents, um, mainly gold, uh, but they are one of the major miners in Africa. In fact, in terms of output, um, they mine more gold out of Africa than any multinational company. Um, and then they also have copper projects in Zambia, um, Saudi Arabia, and crucially, they have one in Chile. And Chile is far and away the world's largest producer of copper. So not only is Barrick diversified in where a lot of their mining projects are, but they are in a lot of these key places in the world where uh, the expectations are that exploration is going to lead to very, very rich mines. And uh, with this, you know, obviously the price of the of the of the mineral as it's trading is, is maybe the biggest determinant of how the, the stock trades. But in terms of how the business works, you know, is is gold and copper their singular focus, and they want to stay in those two areas? And why stay in those two two particular metals? They are their core uh, minerals that they're mining. Of course, um, they do get a little bit of silver as silver, a byproduct. Yeah. Um, but mainly it's they're focused on gold and copper and, and much more so on gold than on copper. They are not one of the, the largest copper producers in the world, but that does give them sort of a, a backstop that it, it's a rather, even though the mining process is similar, uh, the market for copper is, is much wider than gold. Um, it's an industrial metal. It, it isn't used for many of the same things. Um, but what's interesting in that sense, as you said, you know, setting aside the price of the minerals that they're mining, we all know that that's what's important to, to their, their business model, um, is that Barrick has engaged in a pretty aggressive debt reduction. Um, and they've been far more successful than a lot of their peers in the, in the, in the gold mining industry in this respect. Um, about 2013, 2014, um, when they hit their peak debt, they were over 13, they're over $13 billion shy of where that was now. And when you look at, uh, they have about $3 billion in undrawn credit lines. They have record high free cash flow in, in about, uh, of about $5 billion. All of that tells us that uh, Barrick has flexibility that they can deleverage a lot better than a lot of other gold miners, um, especially of their size, given that it is such a cyclical industry and um, many of cyclical the because you know they're diversified in terms of their production, right? It's not like they're mm -hmm. any of their mines right now are eminently uh, going to run dry and they will not have production, right? They've got new things coming out all the time, and they've got, as you mentioned, long-lived reserves. But cyclical because the price is cyclical, or the price of the commodity. Correct, and uh, that price being cyclical, it does. Uh, cause these companies to follow similar patterns of how aggressive are they going to be in uh, acquiring new assets? Are they going to spin off some of their assets? Um, so the, the, the cyclical side of it, I bring it up because about uh, seven or eight years ago or so, um, when the gold price significantly dropped, uh, many of the miners did not respond quite as well to, to that changing over of the cycle from a, a bull market to a bear market. Um, so this How are they supposed around, to react? What, what should they do? So Shut down the damn mine? <laughs> <laughs> in many cases, uh, like they call it putting into care and maintenance. That, that right. literally is what they do. Um, in other cases, like As Barrick did with their Porgera uh, uh, project, right? Exactly. And in Porgera, um, the other side of this is that there are some jurisdictional issues where the home country, wherever they're mining, you know, they... 
want to get a bigger piece of the pie and renegotiate the contractual agreements about how much profit is shared between the government and between the minor barrack. Um, and in Porgera, in Papua New Guinea, that was one of the major pressing issues. Um, we've seen a similar thing in Latin America. A lot of the Latin American properties for not just barrack, but some other miners have run into these same uh, issues of local resistance. And so to answer your question, I think that what the, the company should be doing and what Barrick has done is they really have simplified their portfolio. They've focused on their core assets um, without losing that global spread that they have in their projects. Wait, so you're saying when you're dealing with a country like Papua New Guinea, and there is no other com- country like Papua New Guinea, <laughs> but but if it were the PNG government wants a bigger piece, the PNG people want a bigger piece of that mine, uh, they say, we're going to shut it down and we're going to let it, and you, you get a bigger piece of nothing. How about that? That's kind of their strategy? Unfortunately, yes, that does seem to be the most, um, the, the, the least harmful way of going about it because otherwise, as what you've kind of seen in, in Chile and Argentina, is that it leads to large protests. Um, and that is a whole different Particularly mess. in Chile, where, yes. where you see, anyway, Papua New Guinea, uh, we'll get back to that, but in Chile, you've seen uh, a rewriting of a constitution uh, in Chile, and there's discussion about exactly how much are we giving over to these foreign national the foreign companies to come and take our natural resources and should we have a bigger piece of it and should that be written into the new constitution right right and that um those legislative changes that that you're referencing they even put very uh, hard caps on depending on the price of copper or of gold um, this is the percentage that the the government should be getting and so far it does look like that um, those changes are going to pass it could transform really the the copper mining industry in Chile that, as I mentioned, it's the world's biggest producer. But the, the one saving grace is that um, some of the really large companies operating in Chile, such as Barrick, have been given a bit of a sweetheart deal where they have certain exemptions based on how much uh, revenue they produce that they are not held to quite as stringent of standards. Um, it really does seem like it's an attempt to keep newcomers from coming in and kind of crashing the party. But because Barrick has a foothold there, um, they do seem to be a little bit better protected to those jurisdictional problems, as you referenced. And in Papua New Guinea, you're dealing with, you know, what is has historically been one of the most corrupt countries, most corrupt uh, political systems in the world. Transparency International uh, used to have them number two on their list of the most corrupt places in the world. I think they're down to, out of a, they're down to numbers <laughs> out of 180 they're the 142nd most corrupt, so extraordinarily corrupt uh, government there, according to Transparency International and the people on the on the streets. Um, uh, also wanting a bigger cut, not just of of, um, of gold, but also of, of oil and particularly gas. There's a lot of uh, LNG projects there with through Exxon. Um, uh, and uh, is that a risk for this company? Or because they've put uh, Progera into care and maintenance, it's not a risk for Barrick Gold because they're just sort of essentially writing it off or putting it aside for now? I, th- I think it's fair to say they have largely mitigated that risk, but it, it does bear mentioning, as you point out, that on the whole, uh, the gold mining industry in many ways is is a bit of a dirty business. Um, Barrick is hardly alone in, in facing these problems, and um, it, it, there's quite a laundry list of them. As you mentioned in, in Papua New Guinea, you have uh, incidents of forced eviction of the locals, um, corruption and bribes. And then we haven't even touched on the other side of all of this is the environmental damage. Um, and that's one area where uh, Barrick is still facing some challenges. 
Um, the, the the fact that cleaning up the tailing, uh, the mining tailings is the tailings pretty, is, is it, the crap that's left over after you you pull the rock out of the ground, you run it through a grinder, the gold comes out one end, out of another end comes all the the tailings, and that's the the garbage they just leave behind. Exactly, it's all the dirty crap, it's all the stuff that contaminates the water supply, and it, it, oftentimes it is simply left there. Um, those issues are also wrapped up in sort of this uh, this ESG focus on being more humanitarian towards the, the local populations and towards the local environment. And so um, in Barrick's case, they have made some efforts to offer job training and education um, to a lot of the, the populations in these foreign countries where they operate, but also um, making a stronger commitment to cleaning up tailings to um, particularly in Latin America to, to addressing some of these water contamination issues um, that are really par for the course in the mining industry. So I think that's why I say that the risk is largely mitigated because um, there's always going to be that risk for any mining company, but it is it is certainly not isolated to Barrick. So what is it you like about this company? We've got all, all the preliminaries out of the way. What What's the sort of fundamental driver that you think makes this better than most? Well, one, uh, we do have sometimes uh, a tendency to over, to focus too much on the, the C-suite, the CEO, and the leadership uh, of some of these companies. But I think in Barrick's case, it, it um, is actually quite deserved. Um, the CEO that they brought over from the merger with Rangold Resources, Mark Bristow, um, he has been leading this debt reduction plan that I referenced earlier. And although there were skeptics early on, it has, it has turned out rather well for Barrick, and they seem very committed to this path. And then their chairman, John Thornton, um, he's a bit of an eccentric character, as these these people in these positions often are. But note, one of note to, note to the booking staff of the drill down. <laughs> we like eccentrics, especially on the podcast. <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, but Mr. Thornton is interesting partly because he has such a close relationship with China. Um, he has been bestowed with essentially the highest honor that a non-citizen can receive from the People's Republic of China. And crucially, um, during the last presidential administration, he was instrumental in partly brokering the trade deal with China. Um, and so the reason that this sticks out to me and is important is because in many other areas of the, of the commodity space, China is quickly becoming a leader. Um, and this is true in gold mining as well. Now, none of their production um, leaves China. It is all held domestically. Uh-huh. So. The fact that uh, that that Thornton and Barrett could have a close relationship with China, especially looking forward over the next 10 to 20 years as um, China continues to take a lead in, in global gold mining, I think that's going to pay dividends in the long run for their ability to have access um, to a market, to uh, to get over a lot of these jurisdictional problems that are that face every multinational miner. Super interesting. Um, well, this is a fascinating company. We're glad you brought it to our, our attention, um, Eric Millen. Uh, with Gainesville Coins uh, and Barrick Gold. We're going to have a fascinating number about Barrick Gold, that drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot right after this. The drill down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And how about trying out the drill down on your smart speaker? Turn to that smart speaker and say, hey, Google, Play the Drill Down podcast. I think you'll like what you hear. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. 
talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. Right, we're back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot in the oil and gas industry. They call it the lifting cost. That is the cost of lifting that oil out of the well and to the surface. Well, as we talked about uh, with, with miners, it's called in the all-in sustaining costs. So all the costs to get that gold out of the ground, what does it cost, Barrett Gold? Well, in the last quarter, that number, that drill down bite, the last quarter, the all-in sustaining cost for Barrett Gold was $1,018. That's up for 953 bucks a, a year before. But if gold as it is right now is at 18, 12 an ounce, it only costs them 1,018 to get it up. That's a gross profit right there of just about $800 per ounce, Isaac, which is, you know, good stuff when you're talking about lots Not of so ounces. Bad. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.